Welcome to Family First, the wild world of marketing to parents. My name is Mark Giovino, CEO and founder at the Alliance Group. I'd like to welcome Mark Panis to this episode of Family First. For three decades, Mark has built and revitalized sports and media organizations in North America, the UK, and across Europe. He's done so as a front office executive, banker, attorney, and advisor. His incredibly accomplished career includes a decade with the New York Knicks, serving in many roles, including a CMO. After his time with the Knicks, Mark founded HSBC Private Bank's Global Sports Group based out of London. He's also been CEO at AS Roma, Pro Soccer Club out of Serie A, and the Vancouver Whitecaps from Major League Soccer, in addition to time as president at Circuit of the Americas. He's a frequent guest and contributor to the Financial Times, Bloomberg, USA Today, NBC Sports, and Fox Sports, among others. He currently serves as managing partner at Intermarket Media and teaching fellow at University of Texas at Austin. As impressive as his career has been, above all, he's a committed family man and father. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Joe, thanks for having me. You know, I'm going to take that audio clip and send it to my mom. She needs to hear it. Thanks. Hell of an intro. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. Well, let's start with family first. Tell us yep. about your family. How many kids, the ages, and maybe some of the activities they enjoy? Well, sure. So first, before we jump in, let me just say it's it's an honor to be on this podcast, which really is focused for professionals who spend their time trying to engage families, right? Parents, kids, families, and tie them into institutions that are they're, they're part of the thread that holds communities together in a very strong way. And so it's great. It's a real privilege being on. So thank you for that. I have a lovely bride going on almost 30 years now and and three children. So I've got a 24-year-old, my daughter, who just got married. And Congratulations. Um, well, thanks. It was wild, actually. It's funny, a lot of the main elements of the ceremony that we go through that are all these traditional symbolic things. But really, when you do that dance and you give your one of your kids away, it actually matters. It's, a, it's symbolic, but it's also really heartfelt. And you can feel this kind of tectonic shift happen where they leave your family and they start their own. And so that was something that was uh, super powerful and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was amazing. And I have a son who's 22, who's just graduating right now from University of Texas at Austin. <clears throat> and I have a 17 year old who's just getting ready to head into college. So I'm at the tail end of the first run of kids and the house has basically been debabied, but a budget set aside to rebaby if we're ever lucky enough to have grandkids. So looking forward to the new tech. That'll come with that as, as well. That's great. So you're on the other side of things than myself with three little ones. So yes. sure it's got its joys and challenges equally on the other side as when they're younger. How has parenthood influenced your perspective along your professional journey and in, in a number of the different roles you've had? Well, thank God it's continually grounding. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing more humbling than being outplayed by your seven-year-old daughter or your nine-year-old daughter or your 11-year-old daughter. And you're like, I should be getting better at this. And I'm not. In fact, I'm falling behind. But it's really just, look, I think when you get into leadership roles, one thing about being a parent and being a leader, and I'm not trying to conflate these two and be patronizing about it, you realize that you continually assume responsibilities, whether directly or just in context that you have to think about constantly. And, you, and you're responsible for protecting an organization if you're in a marketing role or a CEO role, leadership role, you're responsible for protecting family, responsible for protecting kids, friends of kids, employees, customers. I'm not in any way trying to conflate the two, but I'm saying there is this kind of rhyme 
it's not a mirror, but it rhymes as it goes along between the two. And so I think it's always good because family's always going to ground you or it should. In your role, one of your more recent roles as CEO at the Vancouver Whitecaps out of the, the MLS. Sure. You had a ton of success. And, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of that success, whether on the pitch or off, was about prioritizing fan engagement. Can you yeah. talk more about in that role, some of the things you did to improve the fan experience or even just prioritize it and make it something important for the entire club? Talk to them, you know, in like literally just, and there are different ways to talk to them, right? So I, I moved to Vancouver, it was January of 2020. I moved to Vancouver and I was up there. My wife and a couple of my kids were going to join us, join me up there at the end of the school year. So I had like a six month run of solo. So every night I'd go on and just do some social media engagement. And then, and it, listen, it's not sky is falling stuff. I believe... One thing I think is really important if you're using social media is that not to comment after wins and losses about the win or the loss, because, you know, what people fall into this mistake of is they con they comment after wins and then they almost say anything after a loss. Well, like, you can't do that in a leadership role. Like, so better to just knock on, talk about the culture, talk about people's relationship with the club, talk about things that are important to your fans. And uh, I just go on and engage every night. And one night someone posted a bingo card and it said, are you a, true fan of the Vancouver Whitecaps through social media. And one of the squares was, has Mark Panis responded to you on social media? And I was immediately able to respond to that guy and go, well, you can check that box off right now. It's that type of fun engagement that just yeah, gets people great. rolling. The other thing we did is, we one of the things we did is we mapped the top populations by native tongue in British Columbia. And then we took the top, I guess it was we took 16 of the top 20 and and we just launched the Twitter feed in those languages. And all we did was we recruited people who spoke Punjabi, who spoke Tagalog, which is from the Philippines, who spoke Polish, who spoke German and Italian, and from those communities. And we just said, your role, we're going to make you part of our media team. You're going to get two season tickets, and you're going to be able to come in and address our staff with a traditional lunch from your country and talk us through this. Tell us about it. You know, tell us about your, what this meal represents and some things culturally that'll make us a better organization. And all you have to do is watch the English language feed. And when something comes out, you just clone in your own language and push it out there. And it was so like overnight, we launched with 16 languages. What it did to the community was pretty wild because people like, I can't believe this team's actually talking to us. It led more to people feeling that they were seen and recognized and that they were part of the community. Then I think the actual impact of every individual tweet or even the heft of all those tweets. When the pandemic hit, we decided right away that we were going to start doing two media updates a day at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. And we would just push something out. What's going on from today's health information, information about the clubs, players, what was happening with the league, what was happening in sports and generally, but just a touch point for our fans, just showing them you care. None of those things that I just described cost any money, really. They didn't take a lot of tech. They just took some effort and some elbow grease and having your antenna up and trying to reach out to people and talk to them where they are and explain to those people that they're part of your community and they're valued. I guess the comparison with your time with the Knicks in the late 90s, because social media and content marketing has evolved and changed so much. Right. How, was it easier or harder or both? What were some of the similarities and differences? How did you accomplish that during your time with the Knicks pre-social media, really? Yes, yeah, you mentioned that I um, 
I teach at UT. I'm a teaching fellow there. And for one of my classes, I start a class with a picture. And I say, what's this a picture of? It's basically Elvis's jungle room. And it has in it three TVs. It's got a cassette recorder. It's got a eight-track player. It has a radio. And after students guess, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. But the point of it is that that all the media that was available when Elvis died in the late 70s is right in that room. That's it. That was everything. We all shared that media. He only had three TVs because there was ABC, CBS, NBC. That was it. But he could watch them all at once. He was the king, right? No one even could afford three TVs back then or whatever. So my point is that it is, is that the farther we get away from that concentrated media shared experience, it's always going to be tougher. So in the 90s, yeah, we had lots of cable, but it was cable and radio and print. And that was kind of it. I mean, we launched the first website for the New York Knicks. I mean, we bought a, Solar a Solaris server for $63,000 bought a rack and put it in and we put a website up. We were an NBA team and it was the wild west. I don't know who was going to it back then. There weren't many people, but the point was there were no guidelines. So there was less fragmentation. And anytime you have less fragmentation, it's easier to message, right? Because you can just get larger parts of your audience. You can aggregate larger parts of your audience. Today, when you get to these situations where you have much more fragmented media, I think you really have to decide. You know, Ultimately, so look, there's a form and there's effectiveness, right? And oftentimes great form will give you good effectiveness. So the great form can be, we have this awesome plan and it covers these media segments, segments of population, you know, it can be incredibly complicated and well laid out. I'm not saying this as a pejorative on good marketing plans, built them, lived them, et cetera. But oftentimes it's something that's just a lot simpler because it's really about the communicate, you're communicating. And in order to communicate, the person on the other end want, has to want to hear it and has to want to listen. So just having a great comms plan, a great marketing plan, a great branding plan, and just flooding a series of areas where people should be in numbers doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have grip. And that may sound a little elementary, and I'm sorry if it is, but you know, oftentimes it's these the difference between the, the English ever phrase like chalk and cheese, right? They both with four feet away, they both look the same, right? Hunk of chalk and hunk of cheese. It's like when you get close, that's when you see the difference. Yeah, I love that perspective too, because I think sometimes it's easy to overthink things a bit and get enamored with new media or the new shiny object. And let me go run over here and I need yeah. to have a social media plan or I need to have this. What are we doing with AI? Well, why are we doing? What's the objective? What's the grounding principles? And so your point is well taken. It's the comps plan and the core of what you're trying to do shouldn't change. It's just more channels, which may add a layer of complexity more than anything. Yeah. And how do you want to spark interest and conversation and froth around what you have? Because so often for kind of all of our businesses, and particularly we're talking, you guys really focus in on these cultural keystone institutions. There are going to be times a year where they have lightning in a bottle. They have something. They have a new exhibit. They're launching a new wing. They've got whatever it is that's happening to start the year or the this phase. And how do you get people engaged about that and really into it? And so I'll give an example. The, the pro forma plan would have been when we were in the playoffs in the, in the late 90s, would have half page ads or full page ads and radio blitzes and to, to gin up interest. We were sold out. So that wasn't the issue. It was just how do you gin up interest to just keep this, you just want to keep this momentum turning over so you can land some big sponsorships so you can make sure you're pre-sold for the next year, buy your tickets and so forth. And printing had just gone digital. 1998, 1999, had just gone digital in the sense that digital people could print digitally on scale, at scale, and they were everywhere. They could do it, right? And so we were literally 
what used to be a three-day process, we would finish a game on a Monday night and we were going to play Wednesday and we would be pulling photos that were still slides. They weren't digital yet. You have to get those developed, pull those slides on Tuesday morning and lay out just like a, a you know, a, what would turn into a heavy paper gauge, just placard, two-sided gloss color. And we get that to the printer in the afternoon on Tuesday. And Wednesday morning, we would be outside of Grand Central Station, of Penn Station, of subway stops, and be handing these placards to people as they were coming out from their commuting, going into their office. And it would have the night before's result, like Monday night's result, with an image and a headline and tune-in information and a big sponsor thing on the back. And we just knew that was fire that day. People were running into their office and they were literally people standing around looking at that and debating what had happened two days ago and what was going to happen tonight. That was just ink on paper. So however sophisticated a giant marketing, carpet bombing, media plan to drive ratings or whatever, we felt that this dropping 20,000 of these things in Manhattan could be as effective or more effective for driving hype. And sometimes you just have to be, you know, that was what people wanted to do, right? That's when water coolers still actually had gravitas and people were all in the office and it was a thing. But it didn't, it was no ma major media plan and it didn't, wasn't flight advised. And I'm not, and again, I'm not, all of those things are important and they're relevant. And I, I guess if anything, it's more like your ability to be nimble and to, to tap into something that's important to people in the moment is going to beat the best long-term planning you're ever going to have, depending on the situation. It's all situation specific, right? If you're building a 50-year brand, then we're probably talking about a different set of deliverables in both the short term and the long term. But for things that are in the moment, we're opening a new wing or the pandas have just arrived or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, you really got to capture it in a way that, that makes people want to get together and talk about it and be engaged. Well, being nimble, maybe now more than ever is such an incredibly important skill and maybe more than a skill, a, a strategy, if I can say it in that, that yeah. spirit. Because you have these other tools that weren't there prior. So being able to, there's platforms as vendors, as suppliers, as partners in and around digital media and video that can essentially aggregate these things at incredible scale, especially when you mm -hmm. talk about sports, maybe to a different degree in entertainment. But I'm glad you made that point about being nimble and staying core to your truth. Yeah. I'm a big believer in the box. People like think outside of the box, think outside the box. I'm like box is good. Four sides, got a nice floor on it. Pull the, top down, <laughs> pull the top down when it's raining and people are throwing stuff at you. Like, box yeah. is pretty good. Just stay in the box in yeah. a lot of ways. Be creative. And by the way, oh my God, the greatest thing you can do, I think, for the long term high performance development in a company is to try stuff when it's a mistake. Put your hand up and say, this is a mistake and we're going to pivot and doing that quickly. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, God, we just got that wrong. We totally missed that. Because that's going to be, depending on what you, what, depending on how complex the issues you're trying to address, that could be, you could be wrong. I know, I'm look, I'm wrong all the time. Sometimes it's 25% of the time. Sometimes it seems like it's 50% of the time. I don't think it's that high. But it, you just, you feel that way. So it's like, you know, the fascia in your body, right? Around your muscles, right? That's, that has to be, people always saying break, use a roller, break up the fascia, make it supple. Your organization has to be supple in the way that you operate in that when you flex, 
your body has to be able to respond. The organization has to respond. So when you say, let's try this. And then if you are afraid to say you made a mistake or you just know it's not working and everyone knows it's not working and for ego or fear, you let it go significantly longer than it should. You calcify that fast, right? The organization stops being nimble. It stops trying to flex. There's nothing better than when younger people in an organization see senior executives be like, wow, we tried it and it didn't work. Let's be smart. One, why didn't it work? Okay. Let's identify the reasons too. Can we address them and fix this? Or do we have to abandon it? Them seeing that process makes you a much better organization. It empowers people. There's nothing better than people come in. I'm the, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm like, try it. Let's try it. I don't know if it's going to work either. But you know, you start to, because people always do more with their good idea than they will with your great idea. If it's their idea, right? Their good idea. They will work day and night to make that thing, make that thing home. And what do they say in, in so many respects, indecision is worse than a bad decision? Try things, try new things, yeah. make mistakes, fall down. That's how you learn. I mean, by every nature of, of that approach. When you, we talk about indecision, it was more no more indecision than through the pandemic. And here you were as CEO of the Whitecaps during one of the hardest times where people weren't sure what to do. And uh, let's talk for a minute about some of the work that you did and your team did in many ways being credited with saving the Vancouver Aquarium from permanently closing. Oh man, the aquarium, one of the greatest institutions I've ever had the privilege to walk through the door of. Oh and, my and, God. and for context, for those who aren't familiar or don't live in Canada, Vancouver Aquarium is Canada's largest aquarium. And it's actually the fifth largest in all of North America. So it's an incredibly important cultural institution and the work they're doing around marine research and yeah, the scientific literacy research, and activation. I mean, there's so much to it. Can you talk more about why the aquarium in those early days? I, there were so many people struggling. What inspired you and your team to to jump in and and really save and, and help the so aquarium? I remember I'm a pup and I'm working for the Knicks and there was a, a brand that had blown up. It was FUBU, which is like for us, by us, like a yep. clothing brand. And they kind of popped. And it seemed like they were super saturated real quickly. And then our CEO at the time, Dave Chekis, came in and said, hey, just reach out to them. Let's see if we can get something going with them. And my thought at the time was, man, they're already completely saturated right now. They don't have any room for it. And we called them and they were like, oh, my God, this would be the greatest thing. And they like cleared the decks. And I just never forgot that, that there's oftentimes your exterior perception of another organization can just be so off on what their goals are and what their struggles are, their challenges and their values and what bandwidth they have and everything. And so word comes out that the aquarium, everything shuttered and the aquarium was at a point in time, I don't know if it still is, but was at a point in time, it was lifeblood dependent on admission. It needed admission fees in order to stay open. And literally the, the CEO of the aquarium comes out and says, we're going to close. Like we need cash. And this is at a time when there are just so many competing interests for limited cash from local government, right? How do you feed people who are reliant on government assistance, food programs? How do you keep people in shelters or get people in the shelters who are homeless? How do you stop evictions? There were just how are you replacing income for part-time workers? There were these massive things going on and the aquarium was just sitting there and it was just at this crossroads. There was no seemingly relevant way to get it funded. And this is way early, like super early. And I had seen something on masks. And so I just literally reached out to the head of the aquarium via LinkedIn. And I said, hey, I'm CEO of the club, the Whitecaps. 
let's do a fundraiser for you guys. And he got back to me in 10 minutes. We would just, from that point on, we were a go. And it was still so early with masks. And I'm going to tell you, this was no crystal ball stuff. I could have said something entirely different. It could have been something ridiculous, like wristbands and necklaces, but it was pandemic related. And we're like, let's just screen images of the aquarium on the masks. And this is back when they were cloth. The, you couldn't get the K95s or the real protective ones, but it was anything that could be helpful. And so we did it and we generated millions of dollars almost immediately. And the city of Vancouver just embraced the idea that it could help save such an important institution. Is it fair to connect the dots here and say the work you've done along your career and certainly at the Whitecaps, when you talk about engaging with fans, meeting them where they are, speak their language literally and figuratively. So you pull them along and then here a tough time hits. And sometimes the, the, the simplest of ideas lead the day. CEO talking to a CEO, like, hey, what, what do you think about this idea? And here you raise millions of dollars. Is it fair to draw that correlation by the work without knowing it, the fan engagement, that was a critical step to then, as a jumping off point, help another cultural institution? So I'm a big believer that, to your point, I'm a big believer that organizations very often underestimate the intelligence of the patients of their community, their fans, their customers, their members, they underestimate it. We can't do that because if we do, people won't put up with it. Well, you know what? Have you asked them? Right. Have you laid out a plan, a multi-year plan and got them and got their feedback and incorporated it and then said, you've been transparent and said, okay. Tell us, like the first home game, what did I do? We had supporters clubs. So just the day of the game, they would all go to these specific bars and they would all meet up and march down. I just went to the various pubs and bought everybody a drink. How often has that happened in your career where you've been, I mean, you've been at and led some world-class organizations within the first few months. I have to imagine it happened more often than not where you ask a simple question about, oh, what do the fans think? What do our members think? And and you got some blank stares where you had to say, well, let's go talk to our fans. Yeah. They'll never put up with it. You hear that all the time in sports. Yeah. You know, they're not patient. Well, let's do a five-year plan. They'll never put up with it. Have you asked them? No. Okay. Well, let's lay out the five-year plan. Here's the key. We have to stick to it. And if we don't stick to our plan, we have to explain to them when we're changing what didn't work that it was our mistake or there was some exigent circumstance. That's why it's not working and why we have to change. And they will be patient. What leadership tends to do is they keep things hidden because they think it's going to cause an uproar. Then what they do is if they do articulate some plan and they have to change it, they're defensive. And so then they just, then people are like, well, I'm not patient with you because you told me you were going to do X, Y, Z two years ago. And now you're doing ABC. And I have no reason for the, there's no reason for the change. Like you're being like, so no, I'm not patient with you. Engage them, make them, make your stakeholders. People want to be involved, man. Everyone wants to be, cheers. Everyone wants to go with, everyone knows your name, right? It's really that basic. And if you're a cultural institution, if you're building, if you're a museum or you're a zoo or an aquarium, and you have the ability to talk to your people, your community about what your plans are and get their feedback and take the parts that are really good and also listen to them. Even if you want to do something and they're adamantly opposed and they have good reasons, even if you don't agree with them, you can say, I understand what you're saying. This is a a management call because I have all these competing stakeholders, but I've listened to you and we can continue to talk about it. Just that type of engagement just goes so far and people are just so afraid to do it. And and look, I'll give you the the classic example because this is like a marketing conversation we're having here, right? If you look at 
sports. And again, I'm a 30 year sports guy. So this is my filter through which I just perceive business and everything, right? Is that sports organizations are so concerned that they're going to be criticized by their own fan base that they have outsourced that one-on-one -on -one relationship to third parties. They've outsourced their, their personalized relationship, first, first party relationship with their fans to Facebook, to Twitter, to Instagram, to Snap. Where do those fans log in? Those fans should be coming to whitecaps.com. They should be coming to asroma.com. They should be coming to vancouveraquarium.com. They should not be going to Vancouver Aquarium's Facebook page. And if they're logged in there, they're Facebook's customer. It's just that right, simple. Right. And, and the reason- You're renting that consumer more than owning the consumer. You take your relationship, you put it on this third-party platform, and then you have to go buy access to your own relationships from them. And, they, and they'll say, oh, well, it's really targeted. This is a great buy. It's like, they're my, they're my peeps. What do you mean? Like, I have to pay you for them. But it's because of this fear that someone's going to get on your website into your little community be critical of you. And you know what? Sometimes that criticism is well-founded. Sometimes you got to listen to that. It's okay to get beat up a little bit by people who are so passionate about your organization. Don't run from that. So I really do think that that first party relationship is so important. You know, look, they are, it's as we're talking, right? This is like a web. It all starts to weave together. It's engagement with your community, trusting in them, being transparent with them, owning up for when you try stuff and it doesn't work or mistakes, bringing them into the decision-making process, explaining how long it's going to take to do something, being willing to put up with criticism from them. I think at the end of the day, all those things, when you pull them together, you end up with a much tighter and more engaged community. And it's all for the better for the organization for the long run. That's such, a, such an important perspective. And, and I wonder if it's in some part the fear you talk about, maybe in some respects not knowing how to do it, although that's hard to imagine given the sophistication and, and the investment and dollars behind sports. But I wonder if it comes back to the other point you made earlier, where it's maybe they're just not prioritizing, where you have all these other stakeholders, whether it's investors or media partners and sponsors and, and fans, unfortunately, get pushed to the side too often times where you make such a an incredibly profound point, which you would think on the surface would not be profound. Talk to your customers and accept criticism, constructive criticism, and that can bring light to perhaps a blind spot you have or just allow you to communicate on a different level. I mean, what's the worst? Honestly, what's the worst that can happen? I would ask that all the time. There's going to be an uproar. I'm like, so, all right. So, well, if there's an uproar, A, it's probably founded at some level, right? It, it's where that people care about leaving sports aside. Let's go to the cultural organizations. If you're overlaying this type of engagement and transparency and operating approach with the way you market to a customer base, if they're fired up about something, there's something underneath that's right. legitimate. And you could be in an intractable situation where you have a hardline group that hasn't gone away for years and they're still fired up. Okay, you know what? Well, then you engage them. Then they know you and you know them and everybody can see that they know you and you know them. And the vast majority of people who aren't entrenched are going to be like, look, these people are trying the hardest they can to do the right thing here. And all of a sudden, that vocal minority kind of gets frozen in amber as who they are. But in order for that to happen, you have to really be more broadly engaging. And, and you know, again, I just remember talking to our team about the uh, aquarium. I'm like, who doesn't love the aquarium? First off, let's make it simple. 
I just come up and said, we don't want any money out of this thing. We want to help you guys. We want to help you guys raise money. It's something we can do right now. So we made it a very easy proposition for them. That was the first thing. The second thing is, to your point, it was just CEO, CEO. There weren't a lot of layers in it. It was just like, let's just do it. Let's get everybody. The next day, we had everybody on the phone on a Zoom. And Zoom was still early on. Zoom wasn't great back then. It was trying. Yeah. But And then we just started working on it. But the point was, people love the aquarium. And so people love the, the professionals who are listening to this podcast. If y'all are still there, <laughs> y'all still tuning in on me. I hope you are. You guys are just, you have beloved institutions, right? Something that is a part of people's, if they're from a city and this is a longstanding institution, they grew up with it and they're bringing their kids to it and their grandkids to it. They want it to be successful. They want it to be accessible. They want to be a member. Right. They want to share the things they love about it with people they love. That's great. Perhaps uh, you talk about your 30 year career in sports and seeing maybe not the world, but certainly business through that lens of, of all your experiences. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably fair to assume that your role as president and advisor as at the Circuit of Americas may cross pollinate in some senses where you had. And for those not familiar, it's one of the largest racing and F1 venues in the country. Yeah, it's, it's the really the only purpose-built F1 venue in the U.S. right now. At the same time, you also programmed year-round a lot of other, I think, family-friendly events. So the, the core yeah. is F1 and racing. But mm -hmm. can you talk more about either some of the programming and how that may have been something yeah. you'd look to I think so it's actually, a stretch to say a cultural institution, but I think you know what I mean in terms of other events and venues. Yeah, no, 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 no. I think that's I think yeah. that's right. It's a track, but so it holds F1 race, purpose built for F1 and a lot of acreage. So it's 1,350 acres. So what do you do with the rest of those acres? Because the track, people think if you have one or two big races a year, that the track is pretty quiet the rest of the time, but the track's hot most days. When it's hot, there's active driving on it, live cars doing really fast laps. And in the month of February, for example, you may, the, the track might be hot for 26 days. And the only reason why it's not hot the other two days is because there's a load in and a strike day for some event they're doing, right? And, but what do you do with the rest of the campus? I was brought in in, in a strategy role uh, for kind of a two-year project. And and what we did is we laid out a, a roadmap to build an amusement park there. So we've already ordered about $45 million worth of rides. It's coming out there. There's a planning for a hotel, a water park, athletic fields, a field house. We're already building car condos, which is you drive your car in at the street level and then above it in the loft is like a man cave type thing where you would go if you're a car person, go work on your cars downstairs and hang out upstairs. Trackside villas, so beachfront property for the racing, private driving club and so forth. And a number of things to really capture share of wallet and share of mind for both the racing side of it which would be private driving club, trackside villas, car condos, et cetera. And then family, amusement park, water park, athletic fields, and so forth. And we have one of the best go-karting. We have one of the best go-karting tracks in North America. And go-karting at this level is really, there are adults that race in the go-karts. It's a precursor to actually professional driving. So it's a pretty wild track that goes, these things go about 50 miles an hour. They get up there. It was this idea of how do you really turn it into a year-round entertainment place center, place that people are going to come back to repeatedly over the course of a year. Before I got there, we launched something called Petman Parkway, which was a trail of lights with a big town square Christmas village that we run every year as well. So really focused on family engagement there. 
there's so many more examples that you see across sports and oftentimes the owners, the ownership group or the investors or the franchise and entertainment always seems to follow sports and entertainment. Yeah. And <clears throat> I'm curious to know, and you gave some examples, I think, in that work with Circuit of the Americas, but how would you think about or advise marketers or sponsors for how they should think about entertainment partnerships or sponsorships? And maybe to take it a step further, how should marketers think about maybe entertainment as a strategy to diversify or rebalance their overall sponsorship portfolio, if you will, because it's typically, I think it's 70% of sponsorship portfolios are dominated by sports. Yet the entertainment, is it is it the right diversification strategy? Maybe a good analogy is we all hear so much about, well, you need different sectors in your stock portfolios, your investment portfolios. Is that a right analogy? Or, or given how much experience you have in sports, but in a fairly one of your newer roles at Circuit to Make, how yeah. would you advise or, or share that type of information for how to think about entertainment, less so as an and or, but as a part of the overall portfolio? That's really interesting. Let's try and unpack that a little bit because I'm curious about that. So I think the main reason why you see and entertainment following after sports is because so much CapEx goes into building these sports facilities that once you have these giant cathedrals for a sport that even baseball even baseball is going to play less than a, a park is going to be used less than one in four days of a year. And that then they play 80 odd games, right? And that's double what they play in the NBA and NFL is going to be with 10 games, maybe including your preseason games, 11, I guess now with the expanded schedule, that could be the max, but again, not a lot of dates. So the entertainment thing is to is utilization of the facility. But I think you're asking a different question fundamentally. And that is how does entertainment fit in? for a brand, right? And how does a brand round out ways that they want to uh, build a relationship with consumers? And I would say that entertainment can be really engaging at it. I guess it really goes back to the, what are the strategic goals? Because there's entertainment can be, as I think about broadly, like family entertainment. And by that, I mean something that you would share with a kid. And I would include a concert in, in that. There are the traditionals, and then there are like the supernovas. So Taylor Swift is the supernova. We're literally, there are Scandinavian countries. She's literally driving the GDP that month in a country when right. she holds a series of concerts there because everything just goes, there's so much cash that pours in. I mean, that's insane, but it's happening, right? And then there's like the Ice Capades and the Rockettes. And I guess Ice Capades today would be Disney on Ice, but whatever it happens to be, like that are coming through every year. And so can you build more of a recurring platform that way? And then, and then you have to cross-section that by saying, we started our conversation by, I'm way, my kids, I'm way ahead on the parenting timeline from where you are. If I tried to bring my kids today to Disney on ice, ha, that would probably be, I could probably get away with it because we're a pretty comedy driven family, usually unintended comedy on my part. We try to have stuff, but I don't know that there are going to be many teenagers, let's say teenage age families, they're going to be focused on the same thing. So you really have to think about how you're going to split that age demographic and, and how you're going to try and own a segment and what your longevity is going to be. That's going to overlay on the type of products you have. And for, if you're a brand, are you launching something? On a regular basis, is Gillette coming out with a new razor every 18 months or whatever their timeline is? Or you're more of a, a consistency. I grew up with this. My parents grew up with this. And there could be any number of consumer packaged goods that are going to fall into that category. I think it really would depend on some very specific 
context from the brand side, from the institutional side. I think the ability to establish something that becomes an annual, I don't want to call it a rite of passage, but an annual, yeah, we should go do it every year when the kids are younger or when the kids are older, but most likely when the kids are younger, right? Because I think we're all looking for stuff to do with young ones on a regular basis. I think that type of platform is great, not for community building, for call it your fan base or your customer base, your community, but then also for brands to know that they can pile in and establish something. And oftentimes what you're really doing, the, the marketeers and the brand builders listening to this are going to know this better than I do. For their local market, the ability for a local brand to come in and partner and be an institution and help stand up that cultural institution is really significant in the same way that we were, we're powerless as a football club right now, but we can help save the aquarium from closing its doors. That's a massive thing to do. And that's what we were able to do. And so the ability to continually try and reorient the local cultural institution that you have into the inner circle of cultural institutions in a marketplace, I think is something that's got to be a goal, right? that institution, I would assume. For sure. And that sparks another thought I'd love to get your perspective on. And, and it's one of our grounding principles at Alliance is when you zoom out a bit, marketers over decades, if not since the first time you were trying to sell your wares, if you will, have always been trying to get people's attention. To which I've often wondered, why do we try so hard in this age of 20, 30, 40 years ago in a 60 second way. How do we get their attention? Then it's 30 seconds. Now it's six seconds. Now it's microseconds. You have three to five seconds, depending on the channel, to make enough of an impact to pull someone's attention from where it is. Where our belief is, well, why try so hard to hijack or steal someone's attention? Why not go to where people are willingly giving their attention? And that alludes to passion points. And the first passion mm-hmm. points you think about are incredibly valuable, incredibly important, but this younger generation now more than ever, you're literally in those cases, in a lot of ways, watching someone else perform or in the case of music, someone else on the center stage of life where any cultural institution, a science museum, a science center, maybe it is theme parks or zoos and crimes, your family is at the center of the experience. I'd love your perspective if that is that too close living in a bubble, how do you respond to it? No, like, I think it's great. That's a great way of looking at it because yeah. listen, when we have young kids, first off, just be candid, right? We're all racked with the, oh my God, am I doing enough with my kids thing, right? I'm working so much. I, and I'm, oh my God, I got to stay fit. And oh my God, I got to see, I'm a guy and I'm in my 40s. I don't have any friends. Guys don't have friends. They die young. And you know, there's all this, this is a crazy amount of stuff going on here. But at the core of it, you're like, yeah, look, I want to be a good parent, right? And so like, how do I divvy my time up? My kids were pups when we lived in New York City and we had a membership to the Bronx Zoo and we would go up literally on weekend mornings and Saturday, Sunday mornings and spend time with them. And it was great on so many different levels. They got to know the place really well. You know, you get to spend time with them in these culturally important institutions, but they're also like, it's good stuff. They're learning about animals. They're learning about science. You know what I'm saying? It's a real positive. There's a psychic benefit in that too. Letting us as parents show ourselves some grace in this process, because there's just so much heaped on. Oh my God, the sky is falling all the time because there's just seemingly so many competing things that our parents didn't necessarily have to deal with. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, I had to be home when the streetlights went on in the summer? That's long gone. And so I think the ability to to help nurture these places where parents can go and be like, yeah, my kids are at the center of it. If it's a theme park, they're off playing all day, right? They're the ones having that experience. And 
if it's a cultural institution, if they're running around the zoo or they're running around a science museum or whatever it happens to be or an aquarium, they're in the middle of it. And I think that's really important. I think it's a really good perspective. And I think it really goes back to the idea of grace. I think it's something that, that we don't embrace enough as, first off, as, as parents, I think that there's a lot going on and our ability to spend some time with our family, we should always be viewing that as a positive rather than performatory. We're ticking a box. What am I doing Saturday morning with them? I think as marketeers, to be able to communicate to people, hey, this aquarium is a place, this zoo is a place, this museum is a place. So you can just come with the family and unwind a bit and then turn them loose. It's a safe environment. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And again, none of this stuff has to be epic. It just has to be good. It has to be fundamental and it has to be pretty straightforward and simple. If you can make it epic, fantastic. But we shouldn't be trying to base our success metrics on how we interact with our community, our fans, on everything being epic. Because life isn't epic in anything else that they do. In fact, probably the most epic parts of their day or their week or their month are when they engage with us as entertainment or cultural institutions or sports, whatever. So it's already at that hyped up level at a platform basis. To go over and above that's great. I don't think that everything's got to be an attempt to make it that supernova memorable thing. It's just, it's got to be a good place that people are familiar with. It's that cheers concept. People want to go where they're a part of a community and, and their kids are part of it and their kids really enjoy it as well. Well, I love how you describe it. I've often thought, I guess more recently, that sometimes the most epic parts, at least as life as a parent, putting that hat on for a minute, are buried underneath a lot of this other stuff that unless you really pay attention, you might miss it. The smile of my three-year-old that when he's looking at my wife or myself in those pure moments at his birthday are buried with the other siblings screaming and yelling in the background. So there's, <laughs> it's kind of like the diamond that's been pressed into this rock and you can't yeah. actually see the diamond. You got to get through these other things. So I love your point about it doesn't necessarily have to be epic. It has to be authentic and real and a part of the everyday experience. Yeah. And if it can be replicatable and then, then now you really have something. So much of this stuff too. I remember I never joined study groups when I was in in college or in law school, because I'd always go in and other people knew so much more than me. And I'd get so rattled. Someone always knows something you don't know. Someone's always father head. Someone's always being a bit of parent. Someone's always telling you stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just take a step back and can you disengage? And the great thing about us as marketeers is providing that kind of step back, that grace, that sanctuary for people to say, yeah, look, you don't have to know everything. You don't, you don't have to get it all right. The reason why it's awesome to turn your kids loose here at the botanical garden is because they can run around and we can hang out. I can throw the picnic blanket down, you know, and Lovey and I can sit here and we can have a fresco and maybe we can sneak a little rosé, whatever we can do here, but it's <laughs> going to be a good day. It's going to be okay. Yeah. We're going to be fine with it. And the ability to be able to communicate to parents that it's okay, that this is the type of place to come to for whatever that happens to be, whatever the metric is for that, for them to get a little grace with familiarity. It was magical. And part of that really, honestly, here's the brand tie-in is to tie in those type of brands that can help you deliver on that sense of it, that are going to make it a, a, a better experience in the facility, depending on literally the specifics of, of what your content is. Before we go, tell us more about the work you're doing now as managing director in a market media and maybe how the, your entire career has brought you to this place and at the right place at the right time and how you're sharing a lot of the expertise and what you've learned over your career with others. But tell us more about in a market media and some of the things you're doing. So- Intermarket really, it's a real discreet consulting shop. We never talk about our clients. We have other businesses, other stuff that we do. We talk about clients all the time. So it's not that. But oftentimes within a market, 
it's really sports focused, sports media focused. The type of stuff that I get engaged in is there are businesses all along the life cycle. There are startups, there are fully ascendant businesses, there are fully mature thriving businesses. There are businesses that may be descending. They may be businesses about to exit or whatever. There are just different type of leaders. Some are great at wearing the sash and it's a fully matured business and it's robust. The diplomacy piece of it's a big part of it. I can do that stuff, but that's, I'm more like parachute me into the fire and let's see what we got to do here. I'm like a turnaround or a builder or a cleanup type of person. That's the stuff that I enjoy. I think I'm, I'm probably better at that than being a diplomat on a day in day out basis. Cause I think there are people who have a greater temperament for that. What I try and help clients do is dig in and build things that turn things around or clean them up. And, and oftentimes what it involves is people who have a number of assets. Some they might own outright, some might they have a minority piece of it's something they may be in between from a control or an equity standpoint and helping them clean that up and rationalize that and and relaunch or reboot. And we really try and do it in a way that lets uh, that doesn't take any focus off the individuals who own those organizations or the organizations themselves. This is all, at that point, I've been out front a bunch. I'm happy to be in the background on what we do with Intermarket. So that's Intermarket. Now, we have just launched a business called Collective SME, Sports Media and Events, that, that we've joined very senior people from events and commercial operations, sponsorship, and, and ticket sales and so forth. We've launched an event business right now, and we we're already just launched about four months ago and we've got really good traction in the way we're picking up clients for that. It's the major event space that we're looking to. So doing things around Super Bowls and All-Star Games, Triple Crown stuff, major concerts, New Year's Eve, whatever it happens to be. So that's a way I think that that we've learned how to, I said, we, we, the four individuals that are involved in it, we've learned how to really maximize the value for events from a marketing standpoint and, and really help drive revenue to them. Because oftentimes you get event planners who are very good at planning events, but they don't have a commercial side. You have people who are very good on the commercial end, but they don't have really the operational expertise. So pull that together. So that's those are the two prongs I'm working, working that, on. That's exciting. I guess between those two ventures and teaching at UT, tell us more about what do you do with the family, especially as the kids are on the older side, when you do find those moments to be together, whether it's around the holidays or others, what are some activities or experiences you guys um, enjoy together? You know, I'm, I'm really lucky that I've the three kids really get along like exceptionally well, freaky. Try not to talk about it too much. So, well, that could be a separate podcast altogether. Cause I bet a lot of people <laughs> listening could really use, let's use help in terms you know of what? how you got there. Let's just go back and edit this out. Cause I don't want anyone to <laughs> we'll start there. Just, start over. <laughs> just leave it alone. When we get together now as a family, it's typically around, particularly with my daughter moving away. She married an Air Force corpsman. So she's up in New Jersey actually right now at, at Fort Dix. We tend to be focused on the holidays around, at least in these early stages. Because again, this is early stage. She left school. My son's leaving school. The other one isn't gone to college yet. Where it's around food and celebration and kind of preparation and getting stuff, getting the house teed up for major events together, doing the major event, and then the breakdown. That's on the where we are right now. I wish I had something sexy and wonderful to tell you. I think we kind of enjoy each other's company. And so we spend a good amount of time together. And the flip side of that is there's always one of them that's off bouncing and doing their own thing. And I think that the way to get everybody to come home and hang out is to not be badgering them to come home and hang out. They got to want to come do it. And so that's kind of where we are right now. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not more articulate. In, no, in that might be one of the best just... answers we've ever had on this podcast, because it almost sounds like it doesn't matter what we're doing. We just enjoy each other's company. I love that, that 
maybe more than anything else is pretty powerful, especially given the ages and the geography and the separation. So yeah, I'm, I'm a beautiful thing. I'm really amazed. I can't emphasize enough. Focus on like humor and comedy is so important. I think just having a level of silliness around the house, I think is great. And, and I think we really try and work at that a little bit. The family has this as a whole language and just a whole set of iconic real life memes and nicknames and for, you know, our entire whatever ecosystem. And, and I think that's accidental at the start, but I think now as I get older, lean into it and embrace it a little bit, because I think it, it just, it takes the edge off everything. And I'm always happy when they come home because you can't take it for granted, but uh, I claim no special expertise on why that, why we're still on a good streak, but we seem to be. Well, that's great. Love to hear it, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a fun conversation for sure. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, if you get feedback from listeners, listeners out there, if you have feedback, fire it off to Gio, let, let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. One of the things I think is, is important is f- for someone like me, when you get a platform like this to be able to, to speak directly to colleagues in the industry, professionals, is any feedback's really helpful and any anything insightful. I just, obviously we all want to get better. So how do we get better? There's a lot of really talented people out there. So any type of feedback that can for that sure. can push that along is more than welcome. Well, that's an invitation for all listening as we wind down here. Thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And don't hesitate to offer comments as, as we post and share. As Mark said, uh, any feedback is welcome. Well, thanks again, Mark. Sure. Thanks. It was great catching up with you and to everybody out there as we head into the holiday stretch. Be safe. Give everybody in the family a hug. And don't work too hard. Says the person. I lived overseas for eight years. It'll all be there. <laughs> It'll all be there tomorrow morning. Don't worry about it. There'll be plenty to do. But, but enjoy your family and friends, everybody. And thank you for listening in to this episode of Family First, The Wild World of Marketing to Parents.